And we either need the hyperinflation of fiat currencies worldwide to get a hard reset to a Bitcoin standard, or you need like this hard wake-up call to all central banks in the world that, hey, this economic paradigm we've been running does not work. Yo, 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 how are you all doing? How is your week been? Are you looking forward to the weekend? I am this weekend off to see the weekend, take my daughter to a concert. I've got no idea who the weekend is, but we're going to go anyway. I've been introducing her to rock and roll, and she's going to be introducing me to some of this youngster music. Also, we're putting the final touches to our next trip. Sunday, I fly out to Nashville, going to meet our boy Danny out there. We're doing a few days in Nashville and a few days in Austin, recording a few shows. And then I'm off to Argentina to make part four of Follow the Money. I cannot wait to do that. And hopefully I'm going to see a bunch of you at the Lightning Conference at Bitcoin Park. Anyway, got a banger of a show for you. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I am your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got my buddy, Robert Breedlove, back on the podcast. Now... I bumped into Breedlove in Prague and he told me I was heading over to London. I was like, mate, we have two things we have to do. Firstly, we have to make a show. Of course, we've got to make a show. And then I'm going to take you for a badass steak. I'm going to take you to Hawksmoor. And so we did both. And do you know what? As conversations go, this one between me and Breedlove was pretty relaxed. We got into the differences between America and the UK, the role of government and spreading the Bitcoin message. And in our previous shows, we have gone back and forth with each other. Actually, we've done it online as well. I mean, we both see the world very differently. And so we do have this kind of tension that goes on between us, but it happened a bit less in this interview. And I think I think some of that comes down to travel. I think him coming to Europe, me going to the US, I think when you do that, you maybe understand each other a bit better. And I, I think his whole perspective on why America is maybe like a petulant teenager, and that resonated with me. It kind of helped me understand a bit more by, about why maybe on certain issues I, I clash with certain people because we are very different in Europe. Anyway, just before we get into the show, I do have an announcement. We've got this last-minute live event in Nashville in a couple of weeks. Actually, what do I want about a couple of weeks? In five days. We've got Preston Pish, Matt O'Dell coming in for a live podcast. We're going to be doing it at Bitcoin Park. If you want to come along and want to come check that out, please head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WBD Live. Outside of that, if you've got any questions, you know how to get a hold of me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Welcome to London, man. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. First time? First time. Can't believe it's your first time in London. Yeah, it's been almost almost two weeks. Uh-huh. Had a great time. That's a long time in London. Yeah. So this was like, you know, I did Prague and I did Oslo. And then this is London was the beginning of my adult vacation. <laughs> so it's been nice. What have you done? Tell me what you've done in London. Uh, let's see. I've done a lot of the tourist sightseeing stuff. So we walked down to the Tower Bridge, mm-hmm. saw that. Um, did not do the London Eye. Um, I also took the train to Paris for three days. So oh, yeah, did, nice. did a bunch of stuff there in the middle of it. And basically had a lot of nice dinners and been in a couple of pubs. And um, Have you got wasted at a pub? No, I haven't been wasted on this trip, but... Um, but it's been fun. I don't. It's kind of London reminds me of New York without the things about New York that I don't like, which is like very the, the extreme aggressiveness and the the uncleanliness. London seems to be a little bit cleaner. People are a little bit nicer, more chipper, not so aggressive. 
Are you saying we're a, we're a civilized society? It's kind of like a civilized New York, I guess. And the city's super walkable, which yeah. is, I think, I read a study a long time ago that walkability is like the primary factor in determining your happiness and living in a place. And so, I, I don't know, people seem to be happy here. Um, the service has been great, you know, like the bellman, the waiters, the waitresses, everyone at every hotel I've been in has been very service-oriented. So I've had a really good time. Good, man. I'm glad to hear I. I am a uh, big fan of London. I think it's the best city in the world, and I know I'm biased, but I think it's got everything you need, uh, and I a think lot, the people are great. A lot of my American friends say the same thing, by the way, which is why I was anxious to come here. Um, many of my American friends that have traveled extensively internationally say London's their favorite international city, and I think I see why. And look, listen, I love New York, but for different reasons. Uh, and I love Los Angeles. I love Paris, you know, I love Berlin. Uh, I've not, I've still got to stick off places like Singapore and Sydney, hopefully later in the mm-hmm. year. But um, I am a big fan of London because I, it's a very multicultural city. It's very accepting. It's very civilized. Um, it's got growing issues, sadly, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll probably get into that because there's definitely growing societal issues. Uh, but I, I am a, I'm pro-London and I love it when people come here and experience it. How does it, okay, so now you've seen it, because um, I think, uh, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I, I, a lot of Americans don't travel outside of America. Mm-hmm. Doing the part, I've met a lot of people who literally have not left America. Right. And I think you have to see the world to understand the world a little bit more. How do you, how would you compare and contrast London to say, I know America as a whole is a tough one, but generally speaking. So when I first, this is not my first trip to Europe. I've okay. been to Europe several times. First time to London though. And my big takeaway the first time I traveled to Europe was... America is like an adolescent culture, right? We're less than 250 years old. You see it in the architecture everywhere. Like we just don't have things that are as ancient as you guys have in in Europe. Um, And with that comes a lot more history, a lot more story. Um, And I guess just a more refined culture by virtue of being older, right? If If culture is like a collective organism, like we often talk about it, then the European culture would just be an older, wiser organism, whereas America is kind of still in its late teens, maybe, I'm not really sure. The petulant uh, child. Maybe maybe early 20s, um, which has some advantages, right? Like we're, we're bold, we're all of these things, we're innovative, um, experimental, but maybe a bit reckless, a bit immature, um, a little bit lacking in, in wisdom. And when I, when I picked that up, when I, the big perspective gain I had in coming to Europe was this whole, like, there's a whole other world, right? Like, I've been in America my whole life thinking this was it. And it's kind of like that feeling of stepping off the set of the Truman Show and being like, oh, there's whole, there's entire other worlds out here. Mm. And when I went to Asia, that's another whole culture shock. I mean, that's, unbelievable. you know, like an alien world, basically. Have you been to India? Not yet. Dude, you've got to go to India. Yeah, I've heard. Uh, Mumbai was one of the biggest culture shocks of my life. Yeah. It's just, it's fucking, it's just mental. This city's unbelievable. I loved it. I'm desperate to go back. I want to take my kids. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I sometimes like, you know, the kind of things we debate or we clash on. We have things we disagree with and can remain friends over. But, but sometimes when I have these disagreements with people, I almost think, well, I've spent a lot of time in your country. I've been to the US like, 70, 80 times. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely understand the US better than you understand the UK. Mm-hmm. I wish people would travel more and, and and see and understand why we're different. I'm not saying we should be the same, but there are cultural differences. Um, we don't have this kind of like, these such extremes. Mm-hmm. We kind of meet in the middle more and try and figure stuff yeah. out. Which 
I think has its negatives as well. Sure, sure. Uh, someone actually the culture of extremes. I forget who described that, but they were talking about how America is very much that. Right? It's like we have the fittest and the fattest. We have the richest and we have the poorest. Yeah. We have uh, some of the nicest restaurants and some of the most disgusting places. Like it very much is uh, a polarized land, and. Maybe there are advantages to that where you're trying to, you know, again, be creative or innovative. You need to have these extremes, but for a long-term sustainable place, you would expect it to have less polarity and a little bit more centeredness, perhaps. Well, it feels like it's breaking. Uh, have you listened to Balaji and Marty Bent? I haven't, no. Man, that, it's worth giving up that four and a half hours. Yeah. I, it's, it's my favorite podcast of the year so far. I got a uh, I got a flight tomorrow, so I'll listen to it. It's so good. Uh, I don't agree with everything Balaji says. And I'm keeping notes because I'm going to mm. interview him because there's some things I want to challenge him on. But there's so many key points he hits on that are really insane. There was one point he said, um, only four percent of Democrats marry Republicans, and he okay. said he said it's this this divide now. It's almost like the Sunnis and the Shiites, mm-hmm. and it is to me it's a culture that's breaking. Well, it's two cultures really. Yeah. That are trying to, uh, trying to survive together, and I, I don't know if it just needs to fully break or this is a good thing. I don't know the answer to that either. Okay, so. um, you've seen these data visuals though, where it shows um, like red and blue. It shows the the divide on issues year over year, yeah. and it shows it just getting wider and wider apart over time, right? It's like Moses part in the scene, now. Yeah, exactly. But it's very much a post. I mean, my hypothesis is like a post-1971 thing. Is yeah. Once you you start to eviscerate the middle class through money printing, right? You you develop these political tensions between rich and poor, obviously, because the rich are getting much richer, the poor are getting much poorer. That manifests itself as political tensions, right? As people are voting um, their interests, essentially. And so I think that you've got money upstream from culture, or you could say economics upstream from culture and culture upstream from politics. So I think a lot of that divisiveness that's going on in the U.S. is a direct consequence of the U.S. dollar hegemony that we just, we've been destroying our middle class uh, more aggressively than ever in the past few years. And you're seeing that, that those tensions erupt into political shitstorms effectively. That is happening here as well now. Mm-hmm, of course, it has to happen everywhere. Yeah. Where it's taking place. The middle class is getting destroyed. Middle class businesses. I mean, you know, pe- yeah, people, families I know with two incomes who you think, you know, life should be pretty comfortable and decent, mm-hmm. you know, are in debt. Sure. With two solid incomes. Um, and and the massive inflation, massive increase of energy prices we've had over the last year. It's been really particularly bad here. Yeah. I've, I've just seen the destruction of disposable income. Yeah. Um, it's not good. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm a firm believer that it's it's strong property rights that allow a middle class to be built up. And the middle class is obviously the bulwark to the entire society. Like as long as it's flourishing and healthy and prospering, then it sort of is the glue that holds together the hierarchy. But when you start violating property, right, through printing money, excessive regulation, taxation, whatever it may be, you're gutting the middle class. You're literally um, destroying the center the center of mass of society itself. I think it was Dominic Frisbee. You know Dominic, don't you? Of course. Yeah. Um, when we made a film on inflation, I can't remember, because I, I don't know the facts. I think he said it was Stalin who said, uh, to destroy a society, you destroy the middle class. Of course, yeah. And 
I don't know if it's uh, coordinated evilness or it's just the incentives of the system just lead to it. And I think I'm, I kind of sway to the latter. I agree. I, I agree just think it's that. like a system of poor incentives um, that ultimately lead to the destruction of the middle class. And like I say, we are seeing it here. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't see an easy way back. I certainly see uh, a potential for uh, massive rounds of further increasing in money printing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, ju- I, like, I just don't see a road back from this. Well, I don't really either, other than the return to sound money. There which we go, man. Takes a long time. Uh, Ed Dowd calls it a meta fraud, which I really like that um, that description because it's not. A few guys sitting in a room puffing cigars saying, what are we going to do to destroy the world, yeah. right? It's this emergent process of bad incentives leading to bad outcomes. And then people typically try to double down. Um, and that obviously, as you're, you're destroying the middle class, you end up this with this uh, huge cohort of poor people, especially through a democratic mechanism, are trying to vote themselves money. Um and what you know when you get into that process of different people trying to vote themselves money, so using the political apparatus to enrich themselves, that's something that's not productive, right? You're not you're not creating anything. You're, so you're you're moving away from the positive sum game of people trading and producing new things and more wealth to the zero sum game of like my win is your loss. And so that seems to be this this major dissolution that occurs with moving off of sound money. As you you break the money. Um, Trade starts to not work so well. Capital starts to get misallocated. The pie is basically shrinking or not growing as fast. So people devolve into more of a zero-sum mentality where it's like, I need to take from you to gain rather than both of us gaining through mutual trade. Is, it, is there a nuance to that? Because you said people trying to vote themselves money, which I, I completely agree. I, and I, I don't think it matters which political party. Mm, they're all no, trying to vote themselves money. Of course. Um, but when you say vote themselves rich, um, who are the people voting themselves rich? Because certainly here, the Labour Party would be campaigning on uh, supporting the people who are struggling most in society. And so these people aren't trying to vote themselves rich. They're trying to vote themselves survival. Yeah, I'm not saying vote yourself rich. I'm just saying vote when you, again, what is the vote, right? I'm casting a ballot saying I want this political leader who presumably represents my interest to go and leverage the political apparatus, which is not creating anything, right? It's just, it's an organization that is sustaining itself on theft from citizens through inflation and taxation. So I want part of the stolen proceeds to go to me, whether I'm the poor labor class or I'm the, I don't know, the upper class in the UK. Uh, We have, you know, basically Democrats in the US, which support the poor and Republicans usually serve the interests of the rich. But the point is when you, when you're reallocating the flow of funds or purchasing power via the political mechanism, it devolves the whole game into a non-productive tit for tat fight. And so (laughs) it's a net negative for everyone in the bigger picture. But people, it's almost like uh, there's a myopia or like a short-sightedness that people don't understand that. They think the only way, well, I'm poor, I'm dispossessed, you know, prices are going up faster than my wages. The only thing I can do is go and cast a vote for this guy that's going to take the political fight to the rich, you know, tax the rich, tax the billionaires, give me more. But that, I guess my point is that that solution is not a long-run solution. Like you're just going to disincentivize the productive. They're going to fucking go elsewhere. They're going to stop producing capital production goes down and like everyone gets poorer on a net basis. That's been one of the hardest things I've had to go through over the five, six years of doing this podcast. Um, 
And I think as you've come to the UK and seen what it's like, you know, we are a very much a civilized group of people who try to figure out, let's figure this out together. We're all in this together. Yeah. We are a society. We don't have, we, you know, the, I think Americans have this fairly recent history of, you know, kicking, kicking out the bricks, um, uh, becoming a republic, you know, having uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, freedoms enshrined in your constitution. Mm. So, you, so you have a different way of approaching politics to us. I mean, the Democrats are a bit weird at the moment, but generally speaking, this kind of distrusted government that they are meant to serve us right. and not us serve them, even though it's gone a bit haywire recently, we don't really have that here. Yeah, You know, we've gone from monarchy to politics. And so we've always tended to figure it out. And, and so I think there's, some people who listen to the show from America haven't understood why I haven't been on the same page as them. Sure. It's just taken a bit longer, but, but I, you know, I am now in that kind of political paralysis at the moment because I, I see it like, like you see the matrix. I mm. see it now in that it doesn't matter who I vote for. It's the same. Yeah. They're both voting right. away my, my money. And also as like, I've built more businesses, I've had to go through all the difficulties of running a business, you know, mm -hmm. just a bar alone. I talked about this on the podcast, just a bar alone, all the different licenses I have to have for a bar <laughs> sure. that has 200 people that come to it. Mm -hmm. If I want to put in a new fixed structure, say this was my bar and say I wanted to change these to a different set of seats, mm -hmm. I have to put in planning permission to the council and then the council have to come and they have to check and they have to agree to allow me to put that in. Mm -hmm. So I cannot change the seating in the bar that I run because of that. Football club, the football club, we've, um, we had new floodlights put in. And they were 15 meter, so that's whatever the number, 15 foot. I can't remember what the size and, yeah. and the size was wrong. It needs to be 16. So we put in an amended planning application and they rejected it. So we have to go through another full planning application, which is another form, just the constant bullshit that gets yeah. in the way. And then when you start looking at the rounds of taxes, the difficulty of opening bank accounts, like it's really fucking hard just to run a business. Yes. <laughs> and then I have to give most of the money we make away. Yeah. Right. So. So I, I think I'm coming to where you are or you you are at and a number of other people. It's just taken a lot longer. I mean, it's... Okay, one of the things I did when I got here was it was like the king's birthday, the first day I was in London, maybe the second day I was in London. And they were doing the entire march there in front of the Buckingham Palace, yeah, I yeah. think is what it's called. And one of the things they did, I have a great video of it actually, is they were flying over. So there's that arch, there's that long road leading, yep. leading up to Buckingham. Horse Parade. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know the name of it. Uh, there's a, the giant golden statue right there in front of the palace. And they were flying military planes right along that corridor. So it would fly over the arch, down the road, and past the palace. But they were flying different generations. So they would fly like 19... I don't know what year, 50s planes, you know, a group of them would fly by, and some 1960s planes, 70s, and, it, you know, the big bombers. And then finally, you know, the end was like the 2020 jet fighters flying very low, very slow. And um, it was just such a flex of military power, you know, and the, and the last planes had the different trailing colors behind them, uh, like the British colors. Oh, was it the, um, oh, that would be the Red Arrows. The Red Arrows, yeah. I think so. They look like very sharp-looking little military fighters. I know, but the Red Arrows, you know, they're, they're like, for every big uh, um, event revolving around yeah. the monarchy or even things like big sporting events, the Red Arrows come in and they they are, they are do their flybys. and they, But they, you know them because they're red planes. 
Yeah, I I don't know if they're red or not. I have to check right. out the video. But anyways, I, what's going through my mind this whole time is like, all right, we're celebrating one guy's birthday. Like, how much? How many millions of pounds of jet fuel are we running just to have this little demonstration? People are loving it. I'm loving it, by the way. Like, it's just cool it's, yeah. to see all this. And then so the planes go by. Everyone's cheering, taking videos. Uh, we walk down to the end of the road near the palace. And then, you know, all these horses, horse soldiers on horseback carrying swords. With their big hats. Big hats and armor, like very classic looking stuff. They're kind of like distributing the crowd a little bit. And then all of a sudden, who drives out? But the king, right? The king drives out in his, I think it was a Rolls Royce. And he kind of gives a little hand wave and drives on to his birthday party or wherever he was going. And I was just like the whole time, I'm like, what is the numbers on this? Like, what is the payroll? What is the jet fuel? What is the military spend on this little flex for this guy's birthday? And do these people know, like, do do other people think that they're actually carrying the burden for this? Like you go to the show, you're like, oh, it's a free show. It's cool. I get to see it. Not knowing that if you're a UK citizen, like obviously you're, you're paying for that. But I think I think the work's been done. I, I'd want it's a shame we haven't got Danny here because he, I'll have him look it up. But um, I think the study's been done is that you're thinking that in terms of spend. Mm-hmm. I see that as a um, almost like Cirque, Cirque du Soleil for the royal family. It's mm-hmm. they're advertising the royal family. The royal family don't really have any power. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. You know, there's there's the um, ceremonial things where the prime minister goes to the king and gets him to approve parliament right. decision, but he, he doesn't actually have any any power. Um, and I think the the monarchy is tourism. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You saw it. People yeah. go to Buckingham Palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go and see all these things. And I'm I'm pretty sure they've done the work and they've done the studies that the the royal family do deliver a net positive mm. uh, income to to the. Uh, to the United Kingdom based on tourism. Tourism. I'm, I'm almost certain that's yeah. true. But again, somebody might dis, uh, disprove that. Um, it's a very... Look, I'm not a monarchist. I And and I, you know, I am anti-establishment. Yeah. But I do recognize historically the role that the monarchy played. They used to play a much more important role. And I know it's a drama series. It's worth watching The Crown. Okay. The, the, the role that the Queen played before we had social media and the internet and we just had radio broadcasts yeah. or the TV and bringing the country together. And it, she almost had an, pretty much an unimpeachable, what was it, 75 years as Queen or 85 years. Yeah. And I think the world modernized beyond a monarchy during her reign. Right. And I think maybe during his reign, we will see that more. I mean, essentially, nobody, nobody's really a big fan of uh, King Charles. Um, he was horrendous to Princess Diana. Um, his son, Harry, has now gone off and tried to exploit his position to become a media person in the US and that hasn't gone down well. <laughs> his brother is a nonce. Um, I, I think the royal family is in struggling at the moment, but, you know, I don't know where it will be in the future. Yeah, I've, I've also, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I've heard it described that the royal family gives people another outlet for... Kind of their, if they if they have frustration with the politics or whatever in Britain, you can also have you can direct some of that frustration at the monarchy rather than just the parliament or the political. Maybe and in the U.S. we don't have that, right? It all goes red versus blue. So maybe there's a a, a benefit to diffusing some of that political angst. I I'm not sure on that one. I don't feel that one. I just feel that the 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 monarchy gets criticised on its own for its own decisions. Mm. Like Prince Andrew was criticised for paying off uh, his uh, lawsuit retaining to Epstein. Mm. Um, There's lots of 
I, I, I think they judge on their own decisions mm. and their own behavior. I don't feel like we use the anger of the country against them or mm. anger of the current situation. Occasionally, some people may, you know, on, on, um, on, uh, they may look at the, you know, times are tough and, you know, we've got these high energy prices at the moment, high inflation. They might look at the royal family and go, well, it's ridiculous they spend all this money on his birthday. Right. But generally speaking, they, I, the, you know, the royal family has a budget. And I'm almost certain they deliver a net positive. But it's a state-backed budget, right? Like, it is, yes, it is a state-backed okay. budget. But I, like I say, I think it's one of those things where the decision is made as the net... Like if you got rid of the royal family and the Buckingham Palace and all those sure, things, sure. how many people will come to London? It's, it's one of the appeals of coming to yeah. London for... You know, remember, outside the world of Bitcoiners, yes. that's anti-establishment, just... You know, if you're a 14-year-old girl in New York, you want to come see Buckingham Palace sure. and you think Prince William is... Yeah. Yeah. No. So th there's a certain... Um, I can see that, but then I can see that argument equally being applied to the American war machine. It's like, look, we make so much money going out and imperializing the world. Why, you know, let's just let that thing roll. Yeah, I mean, the slight difference is, is that profit, if, if it's profiteering on the blood of Iraqis, it's slightly you, different from, you know, uh, having a flyby in, in London. It is, it is. But I just don't like, again, I just have a hard time advocating for theft, basically. It's well, like, the, you know, the royal family has a budget, but where is it coming from? It's coming from proceeds stolen. Does it support tourism? Surely it does, but I maybe think, it could pay for itself on its own tourism rather than paying, being paid for by taxpayers. Well, I think you wrap it into the, the state. If you think state and, and all tax, if your, your position is all taxation is theft, then you disagree with the royal family as much as you disagree with government and taxation. Yeah. If you, like, I'm like, I'm more in the Dominic Frisbee camp these days. Mm -hmm. Dominic, Dominic, uh, is anti-high tax, but he mm. believes you know, a reasonable small amount of tax to pay for the certain things in society we need is is fair value. And I, I'm kind of with him in that. And then if you can justify within that things that government can do which have a net benefit to the country or the government coffers, they can tax you less. So for example, if you run the monarchy as a private company mm. run by the government and they had a budget and they, you know, they delivered a net... Uh, uh, um, uh, increase in income to the government to reduce taxes, you go, okay, well, I can accept that argument because, mm -hmm. yeah, as much as I'm very much down the anti-guff, very much down the anti-government uh, uh, rabbit hole these days, I'm still not in the anarchist no government yeah. position just yet because more on a practi practical reasons because I just, I don't think it happens. Yeah, I agree, actually. not, And I've tried to be more specific when I talk about this to separate yeah. government from the state. Like mm. the state is that enterprise that's taking from you. You have no consent. Like, again, if you want to leave the U.S., right? Say, hey, this is a bad deal. I'm a taxpayer here. I don't like the services I'm getting. I'm going to move to London or wherever else it may be. 40%. Everything above a $2 million net worth, they steal before you leave, right? Everything. Um, well, no, 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 I'm saying everything above $2 million net worth is taxed at yeah, 40%. 40%. Yeah, unbelievable. It's crazy. So they're stealing 40% of everything you've got above $2 million, which isn't that much money anymore. But um, and, and don't you but don't you also rescind your citizenship? You also have to rescind your citizenship yeah. in the process. You can't it's not an, it's one of those few territorial tax systems where you can't just live abroad. Like if you don't live in London X months a year, you don't get taxed in London yeah. or or UK. There's the U.S. and one tiny other Is country. Is it like Eritrea? <laughs> something like <laughs> something that. Something weird, yeah. But if, you, if it's just like, you know, we're so conditioned to it and it's like just kind of the way of the world. We don't have many options, really hardly any other options. So we just think this is the way things are and we just accept it. But that's a really bad deal, right? Like if you've 
if you can imagine going to any other service provider and you're like, no, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to take my assets. And if you're at a hotel, right? If you're like posting a, a security bond to the hotel and you're like, I don't like this hotel. I'm going to go to another one. They're like, all right, we're going to steal 40% of your bond before you leave and go to the next one. Yeah. You're like, this is a shit deal. What are you talking about? Like, give me the money back. I'm going to go over here. But when it comes to a nation state, uh, which Samson Mao analogizes to a hotel, which I think is a pretty useful analogy, we take it as the norm. And I don't know what that is. Is that just part of the human condition? Like, and that, that's why I'm worried about taxation when we say I'm pro taxation, but not high taxation. It's like, well, where do no, you draw the line? Pro, not pro accepting of well, like reluctant what is accept- high? What is high? Like it's a slippery slope. Of course. Right? Of course. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't give you a, a very good answer now. I just, I accept that there are, services that need to be provided by a country. And I accept there's a certain amount of taxation that's needed for that. That's fine if it's opt-in, opt-out. And technically, if it's opt-out, it's not really taxation at that point. Because you can just say, no, it's a, it's a service fee or security fee that the nation state is taking. But if you can say no and go elsewhere, then it's not technically taxation. But well, I mean, you can't say no and go elsewhere and they still steal your shit. Well, we can. I could say no and just go and live in another country. I can go, there's plenty, of, I can go and live in Monaco. I could go and live in Antigua. Right. I, I can do that. We don't have an exit, exit tax. Right. So I can just opt out. Now, look, I think... I think you have to be in a fortunate position to do that because you have to mm-hmm. be able to, one, relocate, afford the relocation, right. have the skill set to relocate. So I've got a podcast. I could go back to Zooming them and, exactly. and do it anywhere in the world. I have enough money to do it. So yeah. look, it's a, it's a privileged position to be able to do that, but I have that. I think it's different for you because you don't have that because it's you have that exit tax, which is, if you're ever going to do it, you better do it sooner rather than later. It's a, it's a crazy thing. And maybe that is my primary gripe is with the U.S. exit tax. Um, again, I don't, I think humanity in the long run will move past taxation. I think at some point we'll look at this legalized, regularized plunder as a means of scaling society as something that's antiquated and it served its purpose, right? It got yeah. us from whatever to where we are today. Um, but in the long run, I think in the digital age, things will just look more consensual because it's more difficult to pin people down, put them in a tax farm and steal from them on a regular basis. So as people have more options to avoid that, I think they're going to exercise those options and the world will just look a lot different. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. 
So they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events. And they're either sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also, today we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. You can almost look at any technology, though, and and see how we evolve beyond certain things. It's even like when I was discussing the show with Daniel on the way down, I was driving down and uh, yeah, we as Bitcoiners are very, very quick to criticize fear to terrible money. But I put it back to Daniel. I said, but what about the, what about the good things of fear? Are, are there positive things fear has done? And of course there are. You know, the, the easy movement of money around the world before yeah, we had Bitcoin. But that didn't require fiat. Well, because <laughs> you could just have a gold-backed currency and does the same thing in terms yeah. of speed. But a gold-backed currency could still be manipulated. I mean, the gold market is, is manipulated right now. I mean, you could argue largely uh, by fiat, though, by but, derivatives and whatnot. Of course, but still, I'm saying it still could be manipulated. But I'm just saying is that like fiat served a purpose at the time. It, it fixed some things that gold didn't have, and then yeah, we outgrew it. I would just qualify that and say currency fixed things that, okay. that gold didn't do, right? I'll talk about this a lot. No, please, portability. You... Gold lacked portability, which is a big problem if you want a globally, uh-huh. a globally um, scaling market, right? We need to be able to move money around the world very fast and easy. We can't send container ships of gold every fucking <laughs> 10 minutes. So currency, when you put currency on top of gold, it solves a lot of those portability problems. But that's not the same thing as justifying fiat. Fiat isn't it's a zero reserve currency, right? If a gold-backed currency is a full reserve currency, fiat's a zero reserve currency. You don't need fiat per se to solve the portability problem. I don't think there's any additional value add to moving from a full reserve currency to a zero reserve currency. Now, the argument would be, oh, well, when there's an economic downturn, we need to print more money. Where's that money going to come from? Well, we'll just, you know, we've monopolized the currency supply. We'll just produce new units. We'll fractionally reserve the banks and we'll give it to the people that we think need it most from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And we we gradually descend into this like Marxist hellhole. So th- thinking about that though, I mean, it's a question I've put to a couple of people. I've never actually got a solid yes or no response from anyone on this, but even the money printing, can can you not even see some benefits in the money printing? I can see the negatives, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Cantillian effect, I can mm-hmm. see... Um, the fact that we've got growing wealth divide, massive, all those negatives, I totally the recognize business them. cycle, yeah, misallocation of capital. Totally recognize all of that. Destroying the middle class. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I recognize all of that. But are there periods of money printing which have led to, I don't know, I mean, the US is 
one of the best money printers in the world, has had one of the fastest growing economies? Mm. Has it not led to uh, more capital that can be allocated? Has it not led to more innovation in technology? It, are there any benefits that have ex- existed from it or come from it? So this is a, a common, especially a no-corner argument, right? Like, no, I'm not defending it. I'm no, just saying... I, I understand. I understand. A lot of no-corners will say separate from that question that, well, you need inflation to drive innovation. And they'll just say, look in the U.S., like we've had inflation and we had innovation. So then they just say correlation equals causation. You need inflation to drive innovation. I don't think, I don't buy that argument. No, it's not even the point I'm making. I'm not saying you need inflation to drive innovation. What I'm saying saying is- What the benefits are. I'm saying it has a massive amount of- cheap capital mm-hmm. become available to investors led to more innovation because there's just been more capital to, to invest. But the cheap capital came from the backs of savers, right? It was stolen from savers and given to investors to misallocate, I would argue. So I would say this. Um, this is the difference between like economic history and mm-hmm. economic science. We can say things about economic science, right? Like man must act, man prefers present satisfaction to later satisfaction, all other things being equal. That's where we get the interest rate. Man values leisure time, all of these axioms that support Austrian economics. That's science, right? That's the the reductive or deductive science of, of Austrian economics that we talk about a lot in Bitcoin. Then there's economic history and you can say, oh, well, this thing happened and then that thing happened. And I'm claiming this is causation, but that's totally fucking unprovable. Right, I could say that we printed six trillion dollars in the past uh, three years or whatever it's been, and TikTok became popular. So somehow, printing money made TikTok uh, an effective, a popular app. I don't even know if the timing lines up on that, but I'm just giving you an example. You're just cherry picking two things out of the world and saying these two things map onto each other, but you can't actually do that in economic science. So the whole point is, it's always subject to interpretation. So when you ask me, has inflation done anything good? I can't even really give you an answer. Like, sure, there's probably some benefits in there somewhere. When there's an economic downturn and liquidity is scarce and everyone's strapped and over indebted and no one has cash, when you inject all that liquidity into the system, it definitely gives people a sense of confidence again, right? People get checks in the mail in the US, even though you're getting like a $3,000 check per US household. And they printed $46,000 per U.S. household. So the other 43,000. Where did the rest go? Exactly. So is there a benefit? Sure, that's a psychological benefit, right? Mm. People that that are none the wiser, they get the check in the mail, they're probably going to go spend it, buy something, et cetera, et cetera. That's stimulative to the economy. But it's it's very much like alcohol, right? And this is what Milton Friedman said about inflation, that, you know, the good effects come soon, the bad effects come later. And it's, and you get into this, uh, Verveke talks about addiction being like a reciprocal narrowing. You know, the guy that's an alcoholic has a few too many drinks, wakes up late for work, gets in trouble with his boss, has a bad day at work. So therefore he has a few more drinks. He's a little bit more late to work the next day. He's more in trouble. Maybe he loses his job. Then he has a few more drinks. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, he's dead or in a ditch somewhere. Fiat currency is very much the same process. Like we print a little bit of money to get out of this catastrophe. Yep. We misallocate the capital. We increase the liabilities in the system, non-linear to the money itself. So the next time there's a collapse, we have to print exponentially more money to cover the existing liabilities. And it's this addictive descent into hell. It's Giacomo Zucco said this to me a long time ago. So it's like heroin. Yes. He said every time, you know, every time you just have that, you need a little bit more heroin. Right. Just reach the same high. But he said, 
when you have the crash, the longer you leave it, the crash is going to come harder. Yes. You got to take the poison at some point. You got to stop. Yeah. And you need to let the crash is the reset, by the yeah. way, to, to reality, right? Yeah. It's you going to rehab. It's you getting the drugs out of your system, whatever analogy you want to use here. And we need that. Unfortunately, we either need the hyperinflation of fiat currencies worldwide to get a hard reset to a Bitcoin standard or... And I think that's the path that likely happens given human history and incentives mm -hmm. and precedent and all that. Or you need like this hard wake up call to all central banks in the world that, hey, this economic paradigm we've been running does not work. Keynesian economics is bullshit. We've deceived ourselves into to thinking we can print money to produce wealth and stimulate and control the economy like it's some kind of machine, which is just the wrong metaphor, by the way. Like, we talk about central bank policy tools. They literally say like pulling levers, pressing buttons. Like the economy is not a machine. The economy is a complex emergent system. Like you're, you're talking about something more like the weather than a machine. So like humans, like when I lived in Kauai, you could not get a forecast that was accurate one day in advance. Why not? Literally. I don't know. The weather in Kauai is crazy. The clouds <laughs> spin around the island. Like it'd say it's going to be sunny tomorrow and it rains. Like the forecast was useless essentially. What in the world makes us think? We can't figure out the, the weather one day in advance in Kauai, but we can plan a global economic system decades or even uh, hundreds of years in advance through these policy tools. Like it's, it's hubris. Um, it's colossal hubris, essentially. Hmm. So I think, hopefully, maybe it's a matter of us moving off of this mechanistic paradigm where we've thought that the world is a machine and we're waking up to the reality of like complex systems. It's weird because in this like Bitcoin world as well, um, I don't know if you find this, but like if you meet somebody in the non in that world, and they're like, what do you do for a living? Like sometimes I feel a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> what do you say? It. What's your answer to that question? Oh, actually? So it depends, depends who it is. Um, <laughs> like if I was on a date, I'm definitely not going to say I'm a Bitcoiner because they just uh, think it's just all this judgment like, might come in. So I just say, look, I'm a, kind of a journalist I make podcasts and documentaries mm. and if they ask why it's like, yeah, economics and if they, they mm. really push me I say well I look at it through the lens of like you know, fixed currencies like Bitcoin so like mm. I I really I really take my time to get there <laughs> some people I just say look I make a Bitcoin podcast yeah. you know, it, but it depends on the audience but usually it's very rare someone goes oh yeah I mean look I get that you know, inflation's out of control and like, yeah. usually it's just like you just have to do because I don't want to deal with instant fad or judgment I just, I just, I just gotta deal with that. Um, Do you get recognized a lot? Uh, uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's, but it's, it's like random. Um, I'm getting a lot in my hometown now. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it never used to happen in Bedford. Yeah. I could, I could go to New York and then like three times on the street, someone will stop me. Yeah. But then um, I'll go home and. <laughs> <laughs> no one gives a shit. Uh, but that's it's happening a lot more. And I think that's because of the football team. Because right, the football right, team's right. getting noticed. So everyone wants to know who the owner is. So, yeah, that's starting to happen. But yeah. And, and do you know what? Everyone's decent. Yeah. Um, it, more in a bull market. Yeah, yeah of course. During of course. the last bull market, it was crazy. I mean, in the elevator in New York, a football match in London, like it was quite regular. It's been less so recently. Yeah. I don't I, I, I don't know what I think about it. It's been It's been happening to me way more than I think it should based yeah. on like just the number of followers and things that I have. I'm yeah. like, this is, we're tiny, right? Yeah. Compared to the, the internet as a whole. But I've been recognized twice in London in a few days, which is weird. People just stopping you on the street. Yeah, it's weird. Thank you for expanding my mind. I'm like, wow, fucking that's amazing. And then I, I went to, I found when you get into groups that are more YouTubers, 
you get a, you get recognized yeah. a lot more frequently. I, do, I went to this week long meditation retreat with uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, and he's a big YouTube lecture guy. So out of the twenty five hundred people that were there, I got recognized like nine times in a few days because they're. But YouTubers. they see you on YouTube. That's the other difference. That's so, the thing. Yeah. So the people who stop me are saying, "Oh, I watch you on YouTube." Mm-hmm. It's never like I listen to your podcast. Right. I watch you on YouTube because yeah. they're, see, they're seeing your face. Yeah. Uh, it's a weird thing. It's. Um, uh, I think it's funny because it happens with my kids sometimes mm-hmm. and they're like, their minds are blown. Yeah. i tell you a funny story. This is hilarious. So uh, the other day, I'm, I'm out on a date and we go, to, <laughs> just in Bedford, we go to this place called Chicken George, which is like a, just like a, it's almost like Americanized chicken, like uh-huh. a bowl of Korean chicken or buffalo or whatever. Uh, and I'm on this date with this girl and she, um, she knows one of the girls who plays for my football team, but she doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. She doesn't know anything of what I do. And she was like, oh, um, Tash was saying like, uh, like you've got like a really interesting job, and and she was surprised. I don't know who you are. I was like, no, I'm not surprised you don't know. Who I am. like, mm-hmm. if you're in this like little nerd world of Bitcoin, you if might you're know. A nerdy him. dude, but like, no one knows who I am. It's not what you think. Honestly, yeah. I'm an absolute fucking nobody. But if you're a Bitcoin nerd, mm-hmm. you do. And she's like, oh, anyway. Literally one minute later, this dude comes around the corner. He goes, holy shit, you're Pete McCormack. <laughs> I'm like, what? Because I love your podcast, man. How you doing? I was like, yeah, all right. He's like, yeah. all right. Well, look, I'll leave you to it. See you yeah. later. <laughs> and then she's there going, what the fuck? And so that was a, that was a bit weird, but. That's funny. Yeah, that, it's, it's a weird world, man. It is. It's, I don't know. The whole nature of celebrity is being decentralized, I guess, right? Well, yeah. There used to just be a few people in magazines. Now it's like whatever nerdy niche you're into, but not necessarily nerdy, whatever niche you're into, that you're more likely to see Instagram influencers or YouTubers or whatever. And people, I really enjoy it actually because the pe- people that approach me, like, their their eyes are gleaming. They're like, thank you. Thank you. I, whatever Grateful. you did. Like I my business was in shambles or I didn't understand this or my family didn't have and then watching your show I learned and things got better. So it's like for me it's very fulfilling. Well th- the thing for me that, that's been really interesting about meeting people who listen to the show is that you tend I think you tend to meet people who are more in your tribe. Like there's sub tribes in Bitcoin. Yeah. Your your tribe is very different from my tribe, right? Mm. Mine is like a a little bit more European centrist. Yours is a little bit more Austrian, mm-hmm. you know. So the things they agree with that they tend to agree with you on, they disagree with. So there's like, like these these different tribes that build up, and so when you tend to meet people, they're always really grateful because mm-hmm. they've been attracted to what you do and they're mm-hmm. really kind. And for me, it's made me realize that this Twitterverse is very different from yeah, the podcast world. Sure. And I think it's very easy to be sucked into thinking, I need to make content that Twitter's telling me I need to make mm. and then disregarding your audience. And so i that's why I've always stuck with what the audience says. What mm. are the emails I get? What are the comments on YouTube? What, you know, where are they? And, and then sticking to my guns because if we all follow Twitterverse, we'd all make the same fucking show. For sure, for sure. I need to be better about that actually. My, my current practice is to just try and have conversations that I find interesting. No, so that's like, a good thing to do, I think, think. Something like I'm trying to learn, basically. I'm trying to figure stuff out. Like I have uh, an unsatiated curiosity about a certain topic. So like I want to read the book and then talk to the person that's either read the book or wrote the mm. book. And something about that learning out loud is what I call it. You see two people yep. kind of at the edge of their own understanding, wrestling with an idea. It's almost like a spectator sport of some kind where it's like people, I, I mean, I enjoy that feeling when I when I listen to whatever, like a Jordan Peterson podcast and he's got someone on that's talking about something I don't understand. And you tell Jordan doesn't understand it. He's trying to learn. It's like, we're all three wrapped up in this process of trying to understand the thing. 
And um, that's just been the approach I've taken so far. And don't, I, I, I don't was, read YouTube comments. I should, I don't know. I'm still hesitant about opening that Do you Pandora's. let them all through? Uh, I think so. So we approve ours because there's so much spam. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you've looked at yours. There's so much spam. We now approve every time. We've done it for three years. But we don't we don't censor. If you go, you'll go in there and you'll see loads of like Pete McCormack's status gark and fat bastard and all that shit. So you approve them as long we as they're everything. Spammy. Scammy. All we remove is the like join our WhatsApp group. Yeah. We remove anything about hex, mm-hmm. but we leave like in the Cardano ones because like hex ones are spam. Cardano ones are people who genuinely think Cardano is right. a valuable <laughs> currency. So we leave it in there so people can talk back to them. Uh, I very rarely read the comments. But I will occasionally. I, I tend to, every show, I just get a little sample. Give me 10 or 15, and that will give me the sense of it. Like, okay, Jason Lowry, people thought I interrupted him too much. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Robert Breedlove, they thought uh, I didn't push back on X enough. Uh-huh. Um, Seth, they found that funny. And yeah. so that 10 or 15 will give me the sense of each show and whether I need to rethink my approach. That's but, a good strategy. Yeah, but don't read them all, because yeah. what, what happens is, you're naturally drawn to the shitty ones. Mm. And so then I'll call up Danny. I'll be like, he's like, Pete, that's like one comment. I read like 50 that were really positive. I was like, yeah, yeah but that one really hurt my that's feelings. It's human nature. <laughs> yeah, it's human it's nature. We like, over-index on the negative. There's a really good Rogan clip. If you search for Don't Read the Comments Rogan on YouTube, <laughs> and you watch that one, he gives you like a really good bit of advice. But no, if you can get away from reading reading the comments. But I think the strategy of, I think the my my view like w- w- what is success? Success is control over your time. Mm-hmm. It's not money. Yeah. You know, you've earned good money. I've earned good money. You know, you know, it doesn't make you happy, really. Yeah, I call it freedom. But yeah, yeah control over your time. Yeah. Control of your time. And yeah. by the way, the older you get, the more important that, that becomes. Sure. Um, being able to wake up today. Like, today I come down and hang out with you. We're going to um, make the show. I'm going to have steak at Hawksmoor. It's a yeah. fucking brilliant day. And then yeah. tomorrow I might, you know, Monday my daughter's sports day. I'll go to that. Some people mm-hmm. can't because they're stuck in. Yeah. So that to me is freedom. And so if you can get control of that, that's the best thing. And I think the way to get there is just make the shows you want to make and you will find a group of people who are with you on that. I think once you chase the numbers, it gets a bit tricky. Yeah. I think there's you know, there's a few people in our industry that have like chased the numbers yeah. and they've suffered because of that. Yeah. So and look, don't get me wrong, I'm gonna do a sailor show every every year because I want a sailor show, I want to talk to him and you need to have a few big shows. Yeah. But generally speaking, I think chasing numbers always fails. Yeah, there's definitely a numbers game to be played and um I guess I haven't indexed on that. We talked about this a little yeah. bit in uh, Prague. I just haven't indexed on that a lot yet because it we've just grown fast, uh, which really is, I'm surprised. You know, I thought we were kind of a niche thing. But at some point, yeah, you're running a business, right? And numbers, downloads are dollars, essentially, or Bitcoin, whatever you're converting it into. And so if you're going to run a good business, you got to manage your top line. So. Yeah, but that, that's like... But That's, you don't want to you don't want to like sell out the content to manage to the numbers because then you dilute the whole message and brand, et cetera. So, but I think there's a difference between trying to get Jordan Peterson on and then mm-hmm. Eric Weinstein and then yeah. Michael Malice and you know mix and and still not neglecting you know up and coming sure. people versus having a YouTube banner which was like this guy made a million dollars by the time he was twelve and like a big right, cheesy right, grin right, like right, right. when you start literally just when you're just being clickbait. Yes. And, and the, the weird faces on the... Yeah. yeah, yeah I just yeah. don't do that shit. I, yeah. think, I think that's... I think that's the, like, the road to hell in, in terms of this. This um, kind of goes into the topic. We got time. 
of mimesis a little bit that I mentioned I've been reading about. Yeah, what's that? Tell me what that is. Mimetic about. desire is okay. what it's also called. Um, this is a, the thesis of Rene Girard. I've only read... Ah, oh, uh, somebody directed me to that. Um, Jeremy Welch. Okay. It's a Peter, Peter, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel's yeah. favorite book. Yeah. It's Thing, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Yes. the magnum opus of Gerard. And it's about this notion of mimetic desire. Very complicated to talk about because it's something like we're always in all the time. But basically, uh, Aristotle said something like, humans excel other animals in our ability to imitate. So we actually learn and compile our personalities through imitation. And you see this with kids, like you've been a parent, yeah. right? Those kids, when they're, especially when they're toddler kind of age, they're perfect mirrors of you. They're yeah. not doing what you tell them to do. They're like imitating your behaviors. If you're getting mad, or if you're doing something that you might not approve of, like you're going to see in that kid real fast. And it's like they hold up this mirror to you. Well, it turns out that process never stops. Like we keep... Like we're doing it right now. As yeah. we interact, I am this amalgam of all the personalities that I've ever interacted with across time. Not a pro rata amalgam. It's not like everyone you interact with, you just incorporate. It's who you are drawn to, who you find interesting, who you find awe-inspiring. Mm. Like you'll, you're more likely to imitate them. Um, and I don't know if you, as I started to read this, I found things like certain ways I say things. I'm like, oh, I got that from my friend so-and-so back in this place, like, cause he used to say it the same way or do the same facial gesture or whatever it is. And so this is a very interesting thesis about that. And the reason YouTube um, brought that to mind was because whatever's working in the YouTube space, right? If it's making these weird faces or making these clickbaity things, well, people copy that and it spreads memetically, right? And this is obviously has connections to internet memes um, that we typically consider like these little cultural idea packets that spread well, we're just propagating those all the time, and it's a game you can never opt out of. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Unchained. Now, events at exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step-by-step -step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, 
which is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. Also today we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A. B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Is that not a little bit like what we were talking about earlier, where it's almost like the alcohol addiction, that you're like borrowing from the future? And so by chasing the memes and the downloads, you're, you're, if you, you're, it's almost like if you're clickbaiting uh-huh. and you've hit a certain number of like downloads, then you need to keep doing that. And if you don't hit that, like, what are you going to do next? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just don't give a fuck, mm-hmm. like if you, if you go into our show, our YouTube banners, it will literally be a photo of you and it'll say breed love. Mm-hmm. It won't say breed love. What is money? Yeah. We won't say, you know, mimetic design, whatever. Like it, yeah. it's not going to say that. That is our identity. And we're cool with that. And if, if it doesn't mean we get as many downloads, but the downloads are authentic. Right. Again, we want the authentic ones. Because we want, we're happy with kind of like authentic growth. I, I agree with that. And so I don't want to get sucked. I've seen other people get sucked into that. Yes. And it just, it becomes a latest addiction. For sure. And I just finished this book actually last night called Wanting. So Renee, Gerard's book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, extremely difficult, almost like a human action type book. Right, like okay. very dense, like 600 pages, hard to read. You've turned me off already. <laughs> it's really good, but it's like, it's a, it hurts. To, this other book, Wanting, is like written in the past couple of years. It's a, it's a synthesis of his ideas written in a very accessible way. And one of the things the author highlights, I don't know the name of the author, sorry. Um, but if you Google Wanting Mimetic Desire, it's the book that comes up, is that humans have to distinguished between, he calls them thick and thin desires. I would call them deep desires and shallow desires. So a shallow desire might be like, I need to pump these numbers. So let me do whatever I can on the YouTube banner. But a deep desire, like what you just articulated, something like you want to be authentic. You want to be, this is your brand. This is how you want it to look, right? There's design considerations, um, there, I'm sure there's an element of your personal style that's like in built into the show, right? Like you're tatted up, cool rocker dude. You make these kind of cool looking, uh, banners and it's guest focused, which I think is also part of like the ethos of your show. So there's a, you have to like not get caught up in the mimetic contagion sometimes. And just by standing out and being true to yourself and true to your principles, um, you'll actually induce other people to imitate you instead. So it's kind of part of like being a leader, in yeah, some respect. I think one of the um the, the, the primary goal is longevity. Mm-hmm. You know, lo- love the job. Fortunate enough that I get to work now with my brother. Mm-hmm. My son works for me. Um Danny's become one of my best friends in the world. Um, you know, uh, and we've got this really great team. You know, we get to do the coolest job in the world, hang out with great people, travel, travel. Mm-hmm. 
you know, little privileges. You, you know, you get invited to things, mm -hmm. and your sporting events. I get cut final tickets mm -hmm. and things like. There's just all these benefits. I'd like to think it's the kind of job you don't retire from. You just can do forever, right? Mm -hmm. And I just want longevity. Yeah. And so in my head, I'm like, long, long. The, the longevity of this is based around two things: the quality of the product mm -hmm. and whether people trust me. Yeah. If you lose trust, you're done. For sure. And if the product quality drops, you're done. Yeah. And so uh, when I look at what others do, yeah, I, there's absolutely no doubt, and I've said it over and over again, unapolog unapologetically, very early on, I looked at Rogan a lot and mm -hmm. thought, well, what's he, what's he doing? Of course. Why, is, why do people trust him? And I was like, he's just being him. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, I don't even listen to it as much anymore now. But, but um I was like, that's, that's, I trust him. I don't agree with everything he says, right. but I trust, it's like you, I, I don't agree with everything you say, but I trust you. Mm -hmm. But there's other people out there, I, I don't agree with them and I don't trust them. Yeah, I think yeah, they're yeah. full of shit. Right. You know, I think they're playing a character. Yes. And I, so the, so the longevity, so like I definitely took ideas from Rogan. I took ideas from Rich Roll. Yes. I look around and I, I say what, interesting, I don't listen to Bitcoin podcasts, by the mm. way. Uh, very, very rarely. I listen to the Marty and the Balaji one because, and it was brilliant, but mm. I avoid that because I don't want us to f all feel the same. Yes. But I'm always, I look at other people and say, well, what are they doing well? How, how do I get longevity? What have yes. they done? So that's what I do. Yeah. And it's, that's what we're all, do. like no matter what business you're in, right? You either have someone you look up to or your competitors, you're seeing what they're doing and you're constantly trying to map your behavior or actions to what works, right? Whatever's being effective. So I, the general point is we're, we're all in this game of mimetic desire all the time. Um, so one example I thought that was really useful in the book, this is again from the book Wanting, is just the nature of a handshake. So if I go to shake your hand, like I extend my hand to shake your hand, and you reach out and you shake my hand, we have kind of this little moment, we might smile, hey, how you doing? You know, these warm feelings. We're sh we're sh our desires are like linked up. We've connected with one another. So you're basically imitating, right? I extend my hand, you shake it. We're on the same wavelength, so to speak. Now, if I extend my hand to shake it and you refuse, you refuse to shake my hand, all of a sudden I'm going to imitate you actually because you're exhibiting these feelings of like coldness or disconnection. And now I'm going to feel that like, oh, well, he rejected my handshake. All of a sudden I am now unconsciously even just imitating how you're behaving towards me. So it's this weird thing where if the whole world is if the global marketplace is like a brain, right? Where I was talking about the analogy between the, the human brain and kind of the marketplace being where all our brains are connected via the price signal. Well, the brain has these things called mirror neurons, right? That are mirroring one another. So it's almost like we are mirror neurons in this global brain. And it's a weird thing to talk about because you're always in the game. And in, in many ways, I think it's the most fundamental act of exchange. We talk about exchange like goods or services, trading hands. But there's something even more fundamental than that, and that is our actual interpersonal interactions. And we're trading cultural and ideological data packets with every engagement. Wow. So it blows my fucking mind. I had, I had a handshake rejected this week. Oh, really? Yes. And how did it feel? Uh, well, she was eight, I think, or something. She was young. It was, it was so oh, weird. She was eight, okay. Sting, Sting's granddaughter. Okay. <laughs> so Sting played in Bedford Park. Uh -huh. Turns out his son is a Bitcoiner and also plays music. And he did an interview coming in saying, um, the best thing about Bedford is Rail Bedford. So I messaged him on Twitter 
and said, I'll oh, come and drop you off some shirts. So I went down to the concert and he got us in and I gave him the shirts and his three kids were there and went to fist bump them all and the youngest daughter just wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> got, 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 uh, got rejected. She might just be too young to know what it was. No, he said, you got to earn it with this one. Ah, okay. Yeah, she had a tough face on that. There you go. I was like, okay. So the, we have a world where people have to earn handshakes. Yeah. So I get it. <laughs> and you, it stands out in your memory too, right? Yeah, definitely. That, that little feeling of rejection. Do you know what it, what, what it was? I was like, that's kind of, you're, you're interesting and different. Mm-hmm. Like if I ever uh, met up with him again, that's the kid I want to know about. Right. What's she up to? Because <laughs> the other two, I mean, three great kids, yeah. lovely kids, but that she stood out to me. I'm like, what is she yeah. up to? What's she doing in life? I think yeah. she's going to do something interesting. And you might bring her like an extra gift or something to try, <laughs> try and win her over. <laughs> Please give me a fist bump. Please give me a fist bump. So, uh, I mean, I don't even know if there's a connection to Bitcoin with that, but... Um, I'm curious though about this this mimesis thing. Yeah. And this is on, I don't know, just a point of curiosity for me, but like what, to what extent does that relate to monetization of certain assets? Like if you see people holding gold historically and you see them becoming wealthier, right? Their purchasing power is going up. Do people just start copying them? Like, oh, well, maybe I'll just hold some gold. And before you know it, it spreads, right? Like whatever is working, people are copying one another's strategy. And before you know it, we're on a global gold standard, something like that. Well, that was and how a, that might apply to Bitcoin. That was a question I was going to put to you. Is, is that is is that a reason that we have this kind of like uh, strong ideology in Bitcoin? Like a lot of people, especially in the Twitterverse, mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm sure you can apply this mimesis um, to Twitter and beha- Twitter behavior. Uh, is that why you get these kind of like culty kind of behavior? A lot of people, you know, suddenly a, a wave will come through. Like sea doors are bad. We're all we're all mm-hmm. anti sea doors. Mm-hmm. Steak's good. We're all eating steaks. Well, sure. You know, is 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 that what it's in play there? I think so because, like you said earlier, um, about trust, yeah. right? That we at least in this little Bitcoin cult, most of us, we had it's kind of a high trust environment, yeah. right? If you say something or if Safety says something about. It, not even a Bitcoin or economics related topic. I'm listening. I'm like, oh, this is a guy that they pay attention. They're no bullshit. We're truth seekers, you might say. So I'm more likely to trust the signal, right? Seed oils are bad. I actually learned seed oils are bad through Bitcoiners. I learned about the carnivore diet through Bitcoiners. Uh-huh. Um, I've learned, you know, it's taken me down a million book rabbit holes. So like the whole sovereign individual thing I learned through Bitcoin. That's through if not pure imitation, at least opening your mind to other things that you may have never seen before. Yeah, it's definitely. Like, I trust this guy. He's smart. And he finds this interesting. Maybe I will too. So let me look into it. So I'm not saying that it's pure imitation. It's not like every time you eat a steak, I need to suddenly eat a steak, but it's at least opening people's minds to alternative lifestyles, ways of being, diets, et cetera. Um, and it, you see how quick it moves to the Bitcoin world, right? Like yeah. once a thing... Once seed oils are being disrespected, all of a sudden everyone's disrespecting the seed oils. It's a really interesting thing that I found whereby um, I can go anywhere in the world, go up on Twitter. Um, I could be in Lisbon. Mm-hmm. I could be in Ohio. I could be in Thailand. And I say, okay, I'm in town. Is there any Bitcoiners here who want to hang out? And they come. And you kind of instantly know you're going you're gonna to get along. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. going to get along. And, and there seems, you might not agree on everything, but you, you're going to get along. Mm-hmm. You've got some enough crossover and the things you're interested in that you're going to get on. The basic values are there, right? Yeah, the basic values are there. It's the it's the Orange Party thesis, which gets you away from this kind of like 
red v blue, mm-hmm. guns v no guns, mm-hmm. abortions v no abortions, like trans rights, fears, like all, mm-hmm. all these things that have created all this separation for the benefit of the machine mm-hmm. to a group of people who are anti the machine, mm-hmm. who may historically have been f- from very difficult, different political positions, but have found a place where they're, they've come together. Yeah. And so that kind of virus spreading through people, I think it's brilliant. I do too. I think, I think it's beautiful. Um, we, you could say almost that humans are like religious animals. Like we need to organize ourselves beneath some story or symbolic canopy, right? Religion has provided this function historically. The nation state sort of does now. That was part of the big King's birthday party and all that. It's like <laughs> demonstrating that symbolic canopy. But Bitcoin is an interesting one, right? It's a story that we're not, humans aren't really writing and rewriting. And it's something that obviously inspires people to towards hard work and honesty and self-sovereignty, like good things for the individual. Um, and so it's, it's very fascinating to me. And I don't know, like we use these words, cult, religion, like they're used in a derogatory way. But I would argue that any social construct has these qualities. Shared shared ideals. Yeah. Take out the US dollar and look at the back of it. It's got a fucking pyramid in the eye of Horus on top of it. It's (laughs) talking about culty, right? And I'm I'm extra tuned in on this because of Taleb's recent comments, right? Dude, he why I mean what Bitcoin has a long history of making really smart people look really stupid. I saw your tweet on that. And I think he's the pioneer of that comment at this point. Uh, have you ever spoken to Craig Warmkey? No. So I interviewed him. He's one of those Bitcoin philosophers. Great guy. Um, he did a thing called the saltiness index for journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, how I think it's, I'm trying to remember, I think, but I think it's the correlation between how early they discovered Bitcoin mm-hmm. and now how salty they are. Mm-hmm. Because really you were given the, you know, the Willy Wonka golden ticket, mm-hmm. the, you were given the jackpot and you rejected it. Um, Nathaniel Popper is a great example of this. I absolutely love uh, digital is it digital gold? The name of his book I can't remember. It's the first book I read on Bitcoin mm-hmm. back in whenever. And over time, he's just become a journalist who just does hit pieces. Now mm-hmm. I think he does New York Times hit pieces against Coinbase or whatever. It's just bollocks. He just writes bollocks. And and I I I can imagine there's a scenario where he was writing about Bitcoin, not buying it, and he's just realized how fabulously wealthy he could be. Mm-hmm. And so Craig Warnke's done this whole saltiness index. Um, and I think that saltiness index spreads outside of journalists. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the saltiness is is just related to they didn't they didn't buy and could have got mm-hmm. fabulously wealthy. I think it's also there's a saltiness related to how much pushback they get. Mm-hmm. And I think Taleb now his position against Bitcoin is irrational. Well, firstly, mm-hmm. he conflates Bitcoin and crypto together. That yeah. whole interview is right. And I was like, to, for this interview to make any sense. You need to tell me if you're talking about Bitcoin or crypto. And right. If you're talking about crypto wrapping Bitcoin together, yeah. you've made a fundamental error. So let's disregard 100%. you. But I, I just think he's salty. That's all it is. Yeah, he's just salty. It, yeah, his ego has been bashed. Um, you know what? What is it? I guess. The, the, okay, back to Mimesis, right? You see a lot of people. And by the way, like if I was an outsider looking at Bitcoin Twitter, I would be like, yeah, these people are kind of weird, right? They're all fucking eating meat. They all hate seed oils. They're very loud and antagonistic online. Like it's a, it's, a, it's kind of a strange little- We're a bunch of fucking weirdos. Subculture, yeah. 
The one common denominator, which I really appreciate, is that we're all nerds in our own way. Like yeah. every time, and this is why I love hanging out with Bitcoiners, it's always some stimulating new discussion of some things I have never heard or thought about every single time. So like, again, Bitcoin's transformed my social life too. I used to like to just go and, you know, go and drink and go to parties or whatever. But now I like to go hang out with Bitcoiners sober and just like jive with these conversations and these ideas that are flowing that I can't find anywhere else in the world. Anyways, so from an outsider's perspective, we look like a weird group. There's, uh, you know, there's also the tendency to be anti-memetic sometimes. Like you don't want to be part of a group. You don't want to be seen as part of a group. You actually want to be seen as standing outside of it, right? They're all wrong. And Taleb, I think, is just the leader. Like what, he wrote the black paper or something <laughs> like swan. that? Like the anti, well, here's why Bitcoin's going to zero mathematically, like oh, a mathematical yeah, proof. Yeah, yeah. And but, then all these mathematicians came out and said, hey, dude, you're full of shit. You can't yeah. say, like, it's not a mathematical proof that it's going to zero. And so he's, yeah, his, he's throwing a tantrum or something, right? Like his ego, I don't know if it's the beef with safety or what, but he is just totally, um, and this is a writer I really, like I've read his books twice. Like I, he's a great writer. If he wrote them, I've also heard he plagiarized from Wittgenstein and these other, uh, uh, from um, Mandelbrot. Heard but he, isn't, isn't it like a uh, great artist copy? Well, once again, Mimesis, yeah. right? Yeah. What is it? Uh, what, yeah, to copy one guy's um, plagiarism, but to copy a thousand is research. Yeah. Um, see, he's a good writer. Whatever to whatever extent he wrote his stuff, but his ego has become so, entang so entangled in this contention that he looks like a fucking buffoon at this point. Yeah, but it's the same like Peter Schiff. Yeah, of course. You know, it's just there's just like this graveyard of boomers who've got it wrong. Even even at the moment, I'm finding George Gavin getting a bit weird. I haven't. He did a whole CBDC thing today. It just didn't make sense. I, I like George. Yeah, I like George too. I haven't seen again. I don't follow many people's content at all. I read books mostly. Right. So I do very little audio or video. Um, but the last time I had George on the show, I felt like we found some middle ground. Yeah, me too. It was like, look, which boils down to whatever the market selects, right? If the market keeps selecting this thing, then it is good money. Well, I find it if interesting it's not, then it's not. that Taleb at this time is doing that, especially at a time where I f I'm feeling like the anti-Bitcoin machine, whether it's the media Big name personalities, the state institutions. I'm I'm starting to see some chinks in their armor. Mm -hmm. There was the thing that came out where was it the IMF that came out the other day and said, you know, we have to accept that Bitcoin can't be stopped. I didn't hear that. Yeah, mm. Coinbase defeating the SEC. Yeah, for every pretty much every presidential nominee outside of uh, Biden and and Trump, they're all pro Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I feel like this tide is now turning. Mm. And rightfully so. And at a time where people have good reason to distrust media, money, and institutions. Yeah. Now, I, f I feel like this kind of tide is just starting to turn. I hope it continues. Um, but it's funny at a time like that, someone like Taleb is still coming out and being given airtime. I mean, even the, I mean, the interview did a great job of like pushing back on him. Great yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a weird... Like, you would not have predicted that maybe 10 years ago. When he wrote the forward to the Bitcoin standard. The forward, yeah, I know. And he wrote a good forward. You know, like he, he said good, good things forward. about it. He wrote Black Swan. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, I guess it's easy to lose touch with reality when you're at the top of a given vertical, right? And yeah. the guy's kind of at the top. He made a lot of money. He has some very successful books. 
And maybe now he, the hubris has just caught up with him. He needs to stay humble and stack sats. And maybe that would humble his ass. <laughs> well, look, one of the hardest things to do is say, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, it <laughs> I've is. I've had to do it a few times. Yeah, same. Uh, <laughs> but I'm okay doing it because yeah. I actually realize it's a superpower. Yeah. yeah. Lockdowns. I was, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I got it wrong. I called it wrong. I am sorry. Right. I apologize. It wasn't through malice. Yeah. I was wrong about that. I was wrong about a lot to do with politics. Yes. You know, like it's okay to do that. Nobody, nobody goes through their whole life 100% right about everything Fucking all the time. Nobody ever. It's, and the reason it's the, a superpower is because you're acknowledging your fallen, sinful, wayward nature. Like yeah. we are dealing with a very complex world. We're going to be wrong about shit a lot. And especially as things are changing faster and faster, you're going to be wrong about more and more yeah. things. So humility increasingly becomes the optimal strategy. Like you just don't. And I guess this comes with age too. Cause I know when yeah. I was younger, I thought I had it all figured out. And the older you get, you're like, wow, I really have fucking nothing figured out. <laughs> yeah. That's I'm older than you though. I don't know how much older. How old are you? you just 37. Say, yeah. I'm, 45 in October. Fuck's sake. Countdown wow. to 50. Uh, yeah, no, it comes with that. And uh, having kids getting older. Kids helps a lot. Yeah, but kids getting older. So you, so one of the big, most transformational moments for me with kids is the moment they come at you with a very mature argument against you mm. and they're right. Mm-hmm. And you have to go, I mean, I had it recently with my son. Yeah, I, yeah had a bit of a disagreement with him and my daughter over something because mm-hmm. they're being fucking annoying. <laughs> uh, and my son made a point to me and he was very mature. He was totally right. I was 100% of the wrong. And I had to say, I'm sorry, you are totally right. Yeah. You know, and and that happens because like look, my dad, my dad's wrong about shit all the time. Yeah. And I'm now as a 44-year-old can right. see that and tell him. Yeah. Um, but to see my son go through that, firstly, brave enough to actually challenge his dad mm-hmm. it's, it is difficult and to be right and so I think more than anything seeing my seeing that with my kids makes me realize I could be wrong about a lot yeah and that's <laughs> yeah. you're setting a good example for them though yeah to actually you know hey I was wrong let me walk that back let's walk through it again yeah and these things are very difficult um it do, I don't know that it I guess it never gets easier if you're operating from your ego. Like the ego is always going to feel that little tinge, but it gets easier. I think with kids too, because it's like, it's not about you, right? It's like, what, how do I handle the situation correctly for them? They and destroy so, your ego. Yeah. Which My is kids great. Think I'm such a dick. Yeah. <laughs> they think I'm such a douche. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, maybe, I am. maybe that's a common thread too. Is like my mom said that having kids is an opportunity to live life beyond yourself. And something about Bitcoin, like I don't, it's not the same thing, but you do get really focused on all these bigger things, right? And other people in the long term and all that. So you kind of, you start to live a life a bit more beyond yourself, I think, just by going into the Bitcoin universe. Um, True. And, and, and it lowers your time preference, like having kids lowers your time preference. So there's a, there's some common thread. Yeah. But I think one of the mistakes like I've definitely made, I see a lot of people make is they've, they've been right about Bitcoin, either through you know being smart or being lucky, mm-hmm. 
and then thinking they know everything about everything else. Oh, for sure. And I've done that. For sure. I'm an expert on everything. Yeah. And uh, everyone with an internet connection today <laughs> thinks they're an expert on everything. Yeah. Well, listen, look, I'm going to take you for a Hawks more shortly. Anyone listening knows what that is. Uh, it's going to be very jealous. Uh, I do want to talk to you about fasting before we finish. Can we talk about okay, that? Okay, let's do it. Because I see you no know, Kung's on a 40-day fast. Russell Kung. I did not know that. I saw a photo of him that he had lost a ton of weight. Yeah, he did a 40-day fast. Was the photo post 40-day fast? Yeah. Okay. And he's about, to, I think he's partway through another one. Wow. It's like, and what, how long was yours? I did 14. And Personally, just, just, yeah. think you look better now than when I saw you that <laughs> what were you on day eleven? You saw me pretty deep into it, day yeah. eleven or day twelve. You looked drained. Uh, I looked uh, pretty internment camp, I think, <laughs> as, as you said. Oh man, was it, what, what did you get out of it? So I was two thirty five when I started. So that's a hundred and uh, hundred five kilos, yeah. I guess, hundred six, seven, something like that. And I dropped twenty five pounds in, in 14 days. So I went from 235 to 210, which is nine, whatever, 10 to 11 kilos lost, Damn. 12 kilos lost. Yeah, but did you need to lose weight? No, it wasn't for weight loss. Okay. So, Because um, I do need to lose weight. I do it for a couple of things. One, spiritual discipline. Okay. Like, I don't know what exactly happens when you're fasting, but your body starts to declutter your thoughts, your emotions. Uh, there's, it's, it's said that the energy that goes toward metabolizing food instead goes towards like housekeeping in the body. Um, I think it's called autophagy where sort of the stronger cells eat the weaker cells. So it's kind of cleaning up all the detritus and whatnot in the body, but it feels like something like that's happening mentally too, emotionally. Um, I just had a lot of baggage from work and personal stuff and, I had done a nine day fast the year before right. and I'd done three day fast several times before that. I do one day fast probably once a week. Oh, wow. And, uh, and by fast, it's just water. Like you just yeah, drink yeah. water and that's it. And electrolytes. So basically salt and water. And so I get the spiritual discipline out of it. Um, I've had this like gut inflammation, autoimmune thing. It's not super severe. It's relatively benign, but I've been trying to kind of deal with that for about eight years. And so it's helpful with that. Um, and then I guess that's really it. What, what's the other thing is, I don't know, just the challenge. I just like a chat. Like I like to kind of set things that are hard to do and like, see if I can do them. And I've done one, one day fast. I, you, you know, I've become very infamous recently for ice baths. Yeah. You know, well, we try to arrange for a barrel. <laughs> that's another one of those things. It's like you go to get into this fucking barrel of ice. Everything in your body is like, fuck you. What? No, like uh, no, it's sunny. Like stay out here. It's warm. Feels great. Why would you do this? Your everything in your body, all your instincts are saying no, don't do it. And yet somehow you your mind conquers and you just go in and you do it and you get this like deep meditative state on ice ba- baths. Particularly, all the blood rushes out of your extremities, like into your chest. Like you're you're cold in your neck stem. Like it's it's awful. You spend three to five minutes in there, but when you come out. And your body like has this rebound effect. Like all the blood comes back out. The endorphins are flowing. Uh, Huberman's got a lot of great podcasts on this. There's like spikes in testosterone and growth factor and blah, 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 blah. Just, it's a, it's a hormone cascade in a positive way for your body. I like, like there's something about that. Just exercising mind over matter and fasting is uh, a very extreme way to do that. So the next, I would like to try to step it up next. I'd probably go 
20 days, 21 days. I'd love to do 40 eventually. This has been, there's a reason it's been in encoded in wisdom traditions and religions for centuries, right? It's a, a way, it's a very natural, easy, low cost, like zero cost actually decreases your cost because you're not eating every day way to clean up the body, the mind, the spirit. And it's not fun. The hardest thing about it for me was I had to clear my calendar because your energy levels are all over the place. Like one day you're down and out and you just want to lay there and maybe you can't even read a book. You're so out of it. Then all of a sudden you get this spike of energy and you want to write a lot. It's, it's very unpredictable. So I had to do it over kind of new Christmas, New Year's, beginning of January so I could have that two-week yeah. gap in my calendar. Um, I would always recommend though, do it in a warm environment because I did this in Tennessee in the wintertime. I was wearing like eight layers of clothes and blasting the heat in my house. Your metabolism plummets. So you're right. very cold, very easy. And um, you have to be careful breaking the fast is the main thing. Um, supposedly that's where people can get injured is if you just kind of reintroduce. Eight cheeseburgers. Yeah, if you go straight to, straight to a <laughs> half pound cheeseburger, it might hurt you a little bit. Um, How did you break your fast? There's a there's a book titled "The Fasting Cure" by a guy named Sinclair. It's available as a free PDF online. Sailor actually recommended that to me. It's a very short read, and you can go. It goes through a lot of case studies about people fasting and different things they've healed. It. I don't want to say it's a panacea, but it it solves a lot of things for a lot of people. I broke my fast with a little bit of watermelon. And then I felt fine. So then I had a little bit of, I had bone broth, then watermelon. Then I had some eggs. Then I just jumped in and had steak and eggs. Cause like, that's my, <laughs> that's the thing I really one, wanted. One day fast ever. I was in LA and uh, the only thing that surprised me about it is I woke up the next day and I wasn't hungry. It was weird. Yeah. I thought I would be, but it's just not for me. <laughs> I have been doing this thing called 75 hard. Oh yeah. You told me. Yeah. But I, broke on day 14 it's uh you have to train twice a day but not consecutive minimum 45 minutes one has to be outside uh no alcohol but i've been off alcohol for a month anyway and a walk counts right a walk counts yeah a walk counts um which which is pretty much all i can do because i can't run because of my back um gallon of water read 10 pages of a book no alcohol stick to a diet no cheat meals and i got to day 14 and I'd only got one workout in mm. and I couldn't fit it in because I had commitment. So I failed because of planning. Because mm. if I'd have planned it correctly, I'd have got up at six in the morning, done one, done one at midday. Yeah. I did my one at midday and just I just fucked up. So I'm back on it. So you have to start uh, over. Yeah, you have to start over. Um, but the really good thing about it is it's just, I think actually failing is a good thing mm. because it's just keeping me in this thing of not drinking, training twice a day, you know, eating well. Like I've lost nine pounds. And so... And I never lose weight because I'm a fat bastard, just eats all the time. But it's just more of a discipline thing that, yeah. What is the diet you're sticking to? I'm just doing um, uh, cal- calorie deficit. Oh. So I'm, okay. you know, and what I tend to have is um, like a brunch, I'll have four eggs and salmon. Uh-huh. And then for dinner, I'll have like a steak. But if I'm sat there with my kids watching a film and they open a bag of chocolate. I'm not going to say no to a piece of chocolate. Gotcha. But I'm, you know, I tend to, across my steak, my eggs and my, yeah, one coffee a day, I hit about 1,200 calories. And so there's like little yeah. leeway if I need it. Or... Have you tried 30 days carnivore? No, my problem with carnivore, it never actually works for me. So I've, I've really triggers people. The healthiest I've ever felt was when I was a vegan. Mm. I did two years of vegan. And the first years when I wasn't working, I cooked every meal fresh. I was light. I was running, man. I got my 
10K down to 49 minutes. I got my 5K down to 23 and a half minutes. Mm. I felt great. My skin was great. I went back to work. I stayed vegan, but because I didn't have the time to make everything fresh, I was having you know, microwave meals mm. and just yeah. pastas. And then I went to shit with it. Right. I've tried carnivore. Whenever I try carnivore, I feel heavy and bloated. Mm, interesting. So it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. So it's not for me, but but I'm good with like fish and eggs. Yeah. Eggs, fish, uh, green salads, I'm really good with them. I think if you do whatever protein works for you, maybe just eggs and fish, even for 30 days, it'll snap that sugar craving. I used to be every week or 10 days, I wanted to eat like a bag of chocolate chip cookies or something, you know, like yeah. this weird sugar habit. But doing carnivore for 30 plus days, somehow I broke it. Like I don't, I'm not interested in bread or sweets anymore. Yeah, Kung said that. She says drop sugar for two weeks and you'll see a massive change in your life. Yeah. But I think, I don't have a desire to, I, I, like, I like watching a movie, having a piece of chocolate. Yeah. Get a Toblerone or a bag of Revels or something. Um, I don't, I don't have bread. I'm not a bread guy. I don't really eat chips or fries. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the other day my daughter was making avocado and salmon bagels and I had one. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so I'm kind of like, I just want to get into a place where I can eat what I want, but not overeat. Yeah. Because I've, you know, put on like 45 pounds since I started this podcast. What was it? No, three stone, 14, 28, 42 pounds. Wow. Three stone. Well, I think you could drop it quick. I mean, yeah. Well, like I'm, like I'll show you my thing. Where is it? And you could also try the fast if you want. It's, um, this is my, uh, it's my weight chart. Since I started. So I'm down from 216 and a half to 208. Nice. So I was the, yeah, but me heavier than you when you're that much bigger <laughs> yeah, than me yeah, is yeah, fucking yeah. ridiculous. I was looking pretty frail and skinny though. And then I've, I gained all that weight back. Yeah. So two weeks from 235 to 210. Four weeks later, I was back up to 230. And By I the think, way, what was that weight you were squatting in uh, London? Uh, oh, deadlifting. Yeah, on your um, hex bar. 160 kilos. Okay. So 335, maybe? Jesus. How do your knees cope? I've been doing it my whole life. Oh, okay. I've been doing Olympic lifting since I was 11 years old. So I'm like 26 years in. I'm, I love it. It's my drug. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm going to take you for a steak. Let's go. This has been great. Where do you want people to go? What is money? Yeah, whatismoneypodcast.com. Uh, Twitter at breedlove22. We made a show and didn't argue about anything. That sucks. People are going to be really let's, disappointed. Let's do it over. <laughs> Fuck that. All right, man. Good to see you. Let's go. Thanks, Peter. All righty. What do you make of that one? I got to say, we uh, we went Hawksmoor afterwards, me and Breed Love, and shared a massive steak. But him being the man mountain he is, he ate most of it. But you know what? I love these chats with Breed Love. Sometimes people don't enjoy it when there's like tension in interviews. But the tension is a good thing. That's where you figure each other out. You figure out the world. You have to defend your arguments or poke holes in other people's arguments. I always think it's a good thing. And so I was expecting the same when I sat down with Brie Love. But do you know what? I think we met in the middle on a lot of issues here. And as I said, I think travel helps that. I think the more you travel, the more of the world you see, the more people you speak to, it helps color your perspectives. It helps you understand people. So I'd encourage as many as people as possible to travel as much as possible I know us in the UK and in America, we speak the same language, but culturally we are very different. And so I think when you get into these discussions, you have to have this kind of empathy for where people grew up, you know, their cultural background. And I think that helped with this. So yeah, it's great. I love talking to Brie Love. Let me know what you think. You know my emails, hello, whatbitcoindid.com. And as I said, we've got this event in Nashville 
It's on Tuesday. It's in a few days, on the 11th at Bitcoin Park. We've got Matt O'Dell. We've got Preston Pish for a live podcast. If you want to join us for that, head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on the WPD Live. Alrighty, I will see you all very soon.